Before we start, can you do me a massive favor and hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to Vision and Graft? You'll be helping the podcast to grow and I'll be hugely thankful. Vision and Graft, a career and resilience companion with Richard William Preisner. Hey, thanks for joining me for the second season of Vision and Graft, which is, um, it's been a long time coming, but I'm really excited to share this new season with you. I can't wait for you to hear all the amazing conversations that I've been having with inspiring creatives. I've just moved down to London after spending two years in Manchester. That was where I recorded the first season of Vision Graft during the pandemic. And now the pandemic is over. I've returned to the big smoke for a new step in my creative journey. I'm excited to be sharing bits and pieces of that with you as well as the conversations that I'll be having. I've just finished shooting promo stills for Just These Please, who are a hilarious comedy group. You should check them out. They're London-based, but they travel all over the place, and I believe they're going to Edinburgh this year. And yeah, I've seen them, and they crack me up. I've also got some other news to share with you um, that's photography-related. For the past two years, I've been working on an art nude photography project called In Company. Um, I'm in the process of developing a book. It sort of grew organically from an idea that I had for a shoot back in 2019, and then the pandemic hit as it was kind of building momentum. So two to three years later, here I am now having done about 25 shoots for it. I'm going to start sharing some of the work on a new Instagram, which is at RWP underscore in company. If you'd like to follow what I've been working on, obviously on Instagram, it's a little bit um, delicate as to what you can post, um, especially because it's an art nude project. But if you'd like to see what I'm working on, you'll see sort of parts of it on there. I've got a really good feeling about this project. I've been getting some really good feedback and I'm excited to hear what your thoughts would be um, as I post. So please do head over there and follow. As I'm a cinematographer, I thought it's time to get some DPs on the podcast because the first season I had no cinematographers on the podcast. So I'm going to start this season with Chris Ferguson, who's a cinematographer who's been a good mate and a mentor to me over the years. He's shot many commercials, short films and feature films, and he's recently shot The Mind of Herbert Clunkadunk, which was a series he shot for the BBC. He's a great guy and he's very honest and willing to share his experiences as a creative freelancer. He speaks of his experiences that are useful for both upcoming cinematographers to hear, as well as kind of general wisdom that's really useful for anyone, uh, creative or otherwise. I took a lot away from this conversation personally, as well as some great advice that I'm taking on set. Chris is also selling a great photography zine and raising some money for charity. A zine is, for those who don't know, it's kind of like a short photography book. We talk about it on the show and it's available to buy at chrisferguson.co.uk. Again, that's in the show notes. I got myself a copy and his photography is very striking. So I highly recommend getting yourself a copy. And it's for charity, so, you know, it's it's doing some good. So, without further ado, let's get going and start Season 2 of Vision and Graft. Yeah, this summer um, I spent most of June and July on two projects which just by the way the schedules went, pretty much went back to back. I did a sort of indie feature film, 350,000 budget, around somewhere around there anyway. So not huge budget, but it was very kind of bizarrely quite doable on that budget. Two-hander, drama, lots of dialogue, and a two-week shoot um, with a week's prep, a week kind of dedicated prep, and then we had recce's and tech recce's in advance of that. So it was actually quite well structured for what it was. A rare, rare thing that it's kind of was actually quite realistic what we had to achieve. And we ended up losing two days of the 11 days shooting 
to a potential COVID little outbreak and still finished in nine days, the whole film. We did a couple of longer days, which all the crew were happy to do after we'd, we'd lost, but not even that longer. We wrapped early on a lot of days. It was really, it was a mad, amazing job. And then went straight into a BBC comedy series. I don't think there's two more polarizing jobs around at the moment, really. It was a kind of oddball, a wonderful oddball comedy, really funny scripts, five 15-minute episodes, 20-day shooting, and just so ambitious, you know, so, in terms of the budget, in terms of the schedule that we had, in terms of the amount of props and art department and locations that we had. To, I mean, it was just couldn't have been more different. I had a, about a day and a half in between the two jobs, and we were prepping the BBC comedy while we were shooting the other film. Luckily, it was the same gaffer on the two jobs, so we'd spend lunch breaks talking about the talking about the schedule and working out how we were going to light certain scenes on the BBC job, and then I'd come back in the evenings and generally was doing three-hour calls with the director every night after shooting probably five of the of the nine nights shooting. I'd do long phone calls with the director for the BBC job after filming on the film. So it was it was mad. And, and as I mentioned to you before we got going, I just had a baby. So it was... Uh, yeah, congratulations. My, okay. <laughs> thanks. Thank you. Yeah. It's great my, um, my partner took a massive hit in terms of, you know, the amount of time she was putting into looking after the little one around that time because I was uh, fairly, fairly absent, <laughs> absent father for a couple of months. Been trying to make up for it since that's been my summer. So it was two really, really fun projects, really varied, really different. My first TV series for me, first feature in a little while, to be honest. I've had a varying amount of luck and, and lack of luck with longer term projects since I shot my first couple of features six or seven years ago now. Done a lot of shorts in between, but I mean, I had a feature cancelled in each lockdown. So that was, yeah, that was fun. What's three? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, to, and to be fair, one of them was the one that we ended up doing we were going to do that last October and we ended up moving it to the summer but so it was really nice and it was nice to get stuck into shooting every you know pretty much every day for seven weeks was was wonderful and you know I, I pretty much had the same crew across the two jobs as well which was really really nice and you know especially now when we varying levels of isolation but we, you know there's still certain amounts of distancing and social life impacted by everything that's going on it was so nice to be just be seeing the same people every day for seven or eight weeks it was it was really really wonderful what drew you to becoming a cinematographer and what's the journey been like so far so for me without going back too far i guess like so i i, I went to uni i think the, the interesting part of this when you know because you invariably get asked this like I went to uni and studied script writing. Like I wanted to get into films, but I didn't really know how to. I wanted to make films, but I thought, okay, you need to know how to write a script. Went into uni and studied script writing and kind of immediately, you know, within about a year knew that that wasn't really for me. So I've been doing lots of work on other productions, generally just working as a runner on some of the more film practical based courses. And then through that thought, okay, I guess I'm going to maybe end up in production because it just for me was like the logical way onto set after doing some running. So I got a job after uni with a company I'd been doing a lot of running for. Like I did do a lot of uni. I did a lot of work as a runner up in London. I was at uni in Bournemouth. And one of those companies offered me a job and I did about a year there and basically ended up sort of being in-house shooter editor, early days of online video, which horribly shows my age, but um, it was just kind of becoming more and more common. And they had a couple of clients who, you know, and I was going out three times a week with a camera. I'd never used a camera before. I told them I had a shot a couple of little things but you know kind of ended up just shooting and editing and it was really good for me that was kind of my like where I kind of cut my teeth a little bit in terms of learning I mean I remember the first job I did I didn't even know what white balance was and came back and it was 
everything was blue and I went to the editor across me and I was like, well, I don't know what I've done. And he was like, okay, let me tell you about what, what a white balance is. So, you know, I was, I was so basic back then in terms of what I understood, but, you know, and then I started like, you know, even just on interviews, I started kind of being like, ah, oh, how do I, how do you like these nicer? How do you, you know, you start just challenging yourself, even though I was kind of just, you know, no one really cared what I did. I mean, they, obviously they did, but you know, you were kind of left to your own devices a bit. And, you know, you, all I was doing was taking some dados and a keynote, but you start to kind of realize oh, there's other ways of doing it rather than just smacking a light in someone's face and making sure you can see them. But then I missed working on bigger productions. I left that, which I'd been doing as a runner. So I left that and started running again. And first running job was on a mate's music video and they needed someone in the camera department just as, as like a camera department runner. So I guess I ended up training with them. And then with that music video company, I ended up for about a year, my first year or so being freelance doing loads of training and bits, then starting to do second AC stuff and realized quite quickly, like, oh, I want, you know, camera department. I enjoyed it and saw a progression. And I was starting to shoot music videos on the side more and was started enjoying lighting a lot. So I did about four or five years working up the camera department, bit of focus pulling. But to be honest, like I was, I knew that I'm not technical enough to be a long-term focus puller. I'm just never had that technical knowledge of cameras, you know, and that makes two of us <laughs> still don't, you know, so I knew that that wasn't ever like going to be a viable long-term thing. Like I had, a, there was a very definite ceiling of the type of jobs I was comfortable going on. You know, I was doing a lot of small commercials, a couple of indie films and things like that, where, you know, it's fine. And, and I never wanted to be on anything bigger as a focus puller because I think quite early on, I was like, right, I want to shoot eventually. That's what I really liked doing. I loved the storytelling aspect because I'd started off in script writing and, you know, I'd spent a year basically editing my own mistakes, which was great. But, you know, in that production company, I was basically, my editing was to work out how to get around the terrible shooting I'd done. It was based really in how to tell a story visually and, you know, tell things. So, you know, I love being a second AC because during the takes, you can generally step back and watch and was making lots of notes of what people had done with lighting and things like that. And, you know, just that was where I, I learned so much in those few years on music videos with loads of different DLPs because quite often the DLPs would have their focus puller and then I was in with a couple of companies who'd just be like, you know, the production companies would pay me not very much money, but I'd be learning a lot. And that was my favorite time really in those years. And then I'd been shooting a, kind of more and more on the side and like, yeah, music videos and short starting trying to do more of that. And then in, I think, 2014 or 2015, got offered a chance to shoot a loosely termed feature film, a bizarre sort of language learning film that hidden as a feature film. But that was kind of my first, and I did that. And then I did a low budget feature called K-Shop, which was kind of for me, my first proper job as a DLP. And over the course of about four months, and then I did a focus pulling job after that. And I was so bad because I hadn't done anything in about five months. I was like, right, now's the time to stop. I can't be trusted anymore. I need to just work out how to shoot. And then so kind of since then, I've been doing what I've been doing and working my way up. Lots of branded and commercial stuff. Probably done 20 odd shorts of varying levels of budget and success. Lots of kind of commercials now. And hopefully from here on more and more scripted stuff. As a second, you watched other DPs or the cinematographers and how they were lighting. Was it just there you learned the skills as a cinematographer? Or how have you kind of learned to develop your skill as a cinematographer? Yeah, that was a big bit. I think one of the things that I, I wish I'd done more of was had a few more DLPs from that time who I'd had the confidence. I'm always quite shy. I had the confidence to like go and sit and ask for a coffee and, you know, talk to them about things and always been more inclined to go and try and work stuff out on my own rather than 
go and ask some people some questions and maybe look a bit stupid, but that's always something that I've, you know, was a bit of a flaw of mine, I guess. To be honest, it was a lot of just shooting really, really low budget things, cobbling together some kit and some lights. I learned so much, so many mistakes and, you know, kind of hated myself and hated what I've done and, you know, gone back and looked at it and just tried to work out and, you know, how, how do you not do that again? How does that not happen? And a lot of kind of the stuff where I've learned a lot has been going out and just doing stuff of, of any budget, any, any scale, and then being a bit self-critical afterwards and looking back and really when going into a next job, just like, I'll always think, right, what did I do on the last one where, you know, I could have done more and, you know, certainly that's becoming more and more, so the last few years, more and more about prep you know, more and more about making sure that you're not really going in with any unknowns to a project as far as possible. Yeah. And, and then working out, one of the big things I've been trying to do is not trying to make stuff look like anyone else does. I've realized that so many people out there, you can get lost in looking at how good other people's work is, but try to embrace the fact that the way I do stuff is the way I like it. Sometimes I can't even help it. Sometimes I'm doing something and I'm like, I don't know if I even like it, but this is all like how all my stuff seems to look and it's fine and it's working. And I guess I like it because it's my sensibilities and what, what I think works for that, you know, scene or, or that, you know, this, I've just realized I can't replicate what other people do and I don't even bother trying anymore. You know, someone might send a reference to something and, you know, you use that as a springboard, but just try to really embrace that we are really individualistic in how we do stuff and how we like and how we approach things. The one thing I, you know, I found once I was shooting all the time, you know, you're sort of out on your own, you know, you're never on really, unless you're operating, you're not on other people's other DLP sets anymore. You're not seeing other people do it. And I remember after about a year, just thinking, I don't know if I'm doing this right. I don't know if I'm talking to production in the right way or talking to crew in the right way. I think I suffered for a couple of years after that, because I get maybe rightly or wrongly just got caught up in like there's a way that things should be done and then you realize that it's it's an industry where it's made up of individuals and you just need to be confident and comfortable in how you're approaching projects that it's the right way that for it to be done and that's something i think over the last few years i've been focused on than anything else is like how am i creating the team and the environment and the the look that i want to make that project what it needs to be when it comes to so learning then it's it's been generally through a process of trial and error embracing where you've failed essentially more error than trial <laughs> Just, yeah doing more and more now to try and um, make sure that, that the trial's happening before a shoot but everything i shot you know in the first three four years was just so low budget you know it was hard to even get some lights to go and try some stuff for me it's been trying to make every job you do no matter what you're taking on better than the last in terms of like whether it's in terms of your preparation or your cohesiveness of what you're shooting or you know whatever I felt was lacking in the last one it's like okay how do I not do this again you know and take the knowledge whatever is good or bad positives and negatives into the next project and always just try to make it quote-unquote better you know. When you were just talking as well about looking at other people's work and trying to embrace your own kind of individual style as it were and not try and mimic other people there was a couple of times, not just that, but where it was really, um, I could really hear what you were saying, like from my perspective too, you know, like the things that you were saying that you've been through, where it's like looking at other people's work and being like, it feels like that's miles away or I'm not quite doing that. I've sort of in, uh, myself in the last couple of years, partially gone through a process of trying to 
except that like whatever I'm making is I'm the only person who can do that. So that individual that should be embraced as a positive thing, not compare myself consistently to kind of people who are much better than me and trying to be more like them, but instead try and be a little bit more like a better version of myself. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like for me, it's if over the next five years I stopped getting hired, that's fine. Like, you know, I'd rather do it trying to do things how I do it than trying to like things how other people do. Like, I, you know, I'd rather do it pushing, you know, the understanding I have and what I'm, you know, what I like and what I think works for a script or a story or, or whatever reason I'm doing it, as long as it's done with good intentions. I'd rather, you know, get five years down the line, think, okay, this isn't where I want to be. And, you know, I'll go do something else or, you know, do more photography or whatever it is, you know, if I'm not paying the bills anymore, I'll find a way, but I'd rather really, I'd rather take the chance now that I've kind of got past this block that I think a lot of people have, you know, Instagram and things are, are amazing tools, but also ones that, you know, very easy to send you spiraling to a pit of depression of how talented everyone else is. But um, that for me has been a big thing of like, right, I'm going to do this how I do it. And people, either, you know, hopefully people like it and people continue to work with me and, and like what I do. But I'd rather know that I gave it a crack trying to do things in an honest way for what works for me than trying to impersonate other people. It takes so much from you doing the job that you do in terms of like your time and commitment um, that if you're not kind of following your own kind of artistic drives, if you're just constantly going against that or, you know, fulfilling someone else's desires, I suppose it would very quickly become quite tiresome and you probably wouldn't have the, I mean, I'm sort of speaking for myself as well. It's quite important for me too to have my artistic input. And I can imagine that, yeah, if you were painting by numbers a little bit more and not doing it the way you wanted to do then it wouldn't be as fulfilling it'd be harder to work the hours that you work and have the motivation to dedicate so much of your life to that thing i find that i can't even paint by the numbers like i can't even try and the more i try and think oh this would work in this kind of style that i've seen so and so do you know i just realize that it's not what comes naturally to me but what i you know i'm just banking on is that the way i naturally shoot and the way i work with directors and you know, crew and whoever, I'm hoping that that is, is enough and is what needs to be done. And, you know, that's the chance you need to take. And if you're going to put this much into it, you may as well do it in the way that works best for you as a, as an individual. Is it a process of kind of like feeling it? For me completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially with anything scripted. I really, so for me, I really like having creative boundaries and most jobs I go into, I'll give my, now that it was developed into this, I'll give myself little rules for camera and for lighting that you know don't need to stick to but you know the options are so endless when you start on a job i quite like having certainly with my gaffer and the last jobs we did we had a couple of things that like right in a pinch this is what we go back to this is how we make this feel coherent and some sometimes it's quite practical and sometimes it's more artistic again for this bbc series that i did we shot so out of order you know it was we were shooting probably bits of every episode every day i mean it was rare that we were doing even consecutive scenes never mind Sometimes we were doing two parts of a scene within over two different days while shooting bits of other episodes in between just because of the, the nature of the series. For me, the main thing practically was like, I want this series to look like it's shot almost in order. Like that for me was a big thing. It's not particularly like exciting thing, but I wanted it to really feel like it's a cohesive thing that if someone watched it, they went, oh, they shot that in order. It feels really consistent with everything else. And so we gave ourselves a few rules for how we'd light and how we'd bring things in and because we didn't have a lot of lights and how we would control using what we did. You go from a feeling of what's important for this story, what's important for this production, 
for me, like, you know, I'll give myself a few things that I'll try and stick to and they can be different each project. But as I say, some of them are practical, some of them are artistic. And I just like having these little boundaries. Those things, certainly the more artistic ones, always come from the feeling of what the story is or what you're trying to get across. But that's the way I've started working and I've found it has helped so much in my approach to certainly scripted stuff. Is this kind of opposed to taking others' references and trying to kind of imitate that in some way? Yeah, and, and it makes it more about really individual to the film and the world you're creating. Like, what are the creative rules of this film, of this, you know, world that we're creating? Like on, on one short that I did, it was just something as simple as there was a character who was in the process of coming out and it was set in London in the 60s and where it was still illegal to be gay in his life at home and at work, he was oppressed. And then he was going to these kind of underground, I think illegal at the time, gay clubs, where he was suddenly in a community of people, you know, who, who were the same as him and he was feeling liberated. And, you know, we literally made the decision that he'll be top lit whenever he's feeling oppressed and not in a world that he's comfortable in and then up lit when he's not. And just like that, you know, there was so many times when we were in a difficult situation, lighting, we were in a lot of small locations and you just go back to, ah, these are the rules. So let's start from there. There's a feeling that comes from talking a lot about a project and then I'll find these little boundaries of that I think, you know, I'll give myself creative kind of rules of the world we're creating that I think, yeah, come from just the feeling of a film you're making or whatever you're making. I suppose that then leads to work that's maybe more consistent throughout in terms of style and because it's all, that's been something that I've kind of questioned in the past and fretted over the idea of like trying to make something have like a cohesive style throughout and it looked like the same film all the way through or the same projects all the way through. That's been the biggest thing that these little ideas have had for me and, and just, and I, you know, let myself break them. You know, it's, it's not like I'm not going to light in a certain way if it isn't right. Um, as soon as I found this, this little idea of just, you know, what are the, as soon as you give yourself constraints, you experiment so much more. The film I did a few months ago, we shot it all on one lens. I had to like retrain myself after you know a couple of weeks of doing that to start changing lenses again on the on the, the next job I did because it was so great. It was great. It was a 28 mil on the mini LF. So I could, in about four steps, I could walk from a wide two shot to a ECU, you know. And you know, we were doing long takes and it was a bit of a dance between me and the actors. And you know, a lot of the scenes are playing so the edit the other day are playing out kind of in one shot. And you know, we're going from two shots to a single to a reverse you know, within the scene. But, you know, we just pushed, you know, that creative constraint as far as we could. And it was great. I mean, I never, ever missed changing a lens. It was great. Neither did the camera team. They were, they were delighted. And it worked for that film. You know, we, it was about a couple who'd lost a, a son and they're kind of been going through a, a breakup over a number of years. And it's sort of the last chance they have of staying together. They're kind of reconnecting over the, the loss of their son, which they've sort of both reacted very differently to over the years and we wanted to feel like it's their son watching them throughout this whole film and it's kind of this singular gaze you know of them and they're being brought back together and so you know suddenly it all starts to make sense you know you've got this one lens that's roaming all the time that's you begin to make sense of the world you're creating in, in that way and it might not work for maybe any other job i do but it was just it, it was so great for that you explaining the restrictions reminded me um, of something that I studied at university. Are you aware of the Lars von Trier's five obstructions? Yeah, broadly. I studied at university. I, I, I may be completely misremembering this, but it's something that I took from university to use in my own work later on or I've thought of. 
essentially he made a film where he'd set out and let, he'd give filmmakers five obstructions for them to make a short film, but they'd be utterly ridiculous, some of them. But within it, he kind of was trying to prove that you'd be more creative if you've got less, less to work with. It's something that for myself is like, it's come up time and time again where when I've been given more options, I've found it hard to know kind of where to start or what to work with essentially but I suppose when you like you're saying if you if you're kind of putting yourself in some sort of confines you've got something to break out of and be creative within. Having grown up in the industry on low budget music videos and features and and shorts you know I've never I've never been on either as an assistant or or as a DP on anything you know massive massive budget they're not the kind of films that I watch anyway you know I'm much happier in the indie world anyway it just doesn't bother me not having budget for something you know and and some people that you know maybe work with in the past you know they struggle not to use the kit that they're used to or you know things like that whereas I you know obviously there's times when you need certain things but I don't I just don't mind it you know if there's not a lot of budget you either do the job or you don't and then you make the best of it you know that's the decision you need to make so often it comes out better for it we did a short where an argument between actually the same one I was just talking about there's an argument between two characters and we were trying to get an HMI that wasn't powerful enough anyway up through a window and we didn't have the right stands, but we were like, thought we should be lighting it. And then we had a quick look at the weather and we went, this is going to stay consistent. Let's just put the curtains in a nice place and shoot it. And it looks beautiful. You know, we could have made the effort to get the bigger lights that we need, but it just works and it looks, it looks great. And you, you know, you don't always need the kit and you know, that, that you think you do. And there's a real beauty to simplifying and, I think anyway. Yeah, I totally agree. The more constraints you have, the more creative you are because you can get lost in in the options. Like the first thing I start doing is trying to make these little for camera and for lighting, give myself a few rules that we're gonna live by on this on this film as much as possible. Competition time. If you're enjoying the conversation, please can you do me a favor and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts? It's super easy to do. And if you let me know you've left a review using the get in touch page on visiongraph.com or by sending me a message on the Vision and Graft Instagram, at Vision Graft, you'll be automatically entered for free into one of the monthly draws to win a Roscoe Mixbook digital swatch book. This very useful tool enables you to pre-visualize colored gels and LED colors, and they're really useful for those working in film, photography, or lighting design to plan which colors they could use in their lighting. I use mine all the time in my planning, and I couldn't be without it. Spread the word if any of your mates would be interested in getting their hands on one. The competition is free to enter. If you really want a mix book and you'd like to increase your chances, if you repost any of my posts on the Vision and Graft Instagram to your story, I will add an extra entry into the competition for you if you let me know that you've done that. The last date for entry is midnight the 31st of August 2022 and I'll contact the winner directly to arrange their new mix book delivery. The competition is only available to residents of the UK, EU, USA and Canada but if you'd still like to leave me a review if you're outside of those areas I will very much appreciate that. Full terms and conditions are available at visiongraph.com. Good luck with the competition. Now back to the show. I noticed that there are some directors you've worked with quite a few times. How important are developing these kind of reoccurring creative relationships for you? And how important have they been as you've moved through your career? I had a bit of a mental block for a few years about working with new people. And I really, I really struggled with feeling kind of comfortable enough in my ability to just go and like once we've had the conversation to go and light it and crack on and wait until they say oh actually can we change this and realize that that's not a criticism or you're not doing anything wrong it's just part of the the dialogue and I think for a few years I think linking to what I was saying earlier about 
you know, just feeling like, you know, <laughs> am I doing this right? Once you start shooting, you know, being a DOP, that was something that was definitely part of my experience building over those first few years of being a DOP and kind of had a really good experience on this last BBC job, which was with a director that I've been wanting to work with for a long time. Like I've loved his work for ages. So it was a real, for me, a massive compliment to be asked to get on the job. And then a kind of a bit of time when I was just like, right, I need to trust my ability and not try and do anything because it's, you build up a shorthand when you work with people a lot and you know that you're trusted and you can just crack on. And I was like, right, I need to start taking that kind of confidence in what me and the gaffer Norbert, who I do a lot with what we're doing and just trust it and wait for people to, to say, oh, can we change this a bit? Or do you think this is right? Or have those conversations. And it was really good. And, and that, that's definitely been something that I've, I've, I personally really have struggled with in terms of, I think, creating new relationships and it stopped me. I'm terrible at networking. And I think because I get a bit, I'm, I'm bad for getting in a negative mindset of why would you work with me when I could probably tell you a bunch of people I'd rather work with than me. Like there's loads of so many good people out there. Um, that's the kind of more negative, you know, mindset that, you know, I certainly have struggled with. And now, you know, I think a bit more experienced, a bit more, you know, a little bit older now it's everyone takes their own length of time. So it's been quite positive and makes me feel much more kind of encouraged going out and working with newer directors. And there's a definite comfort level that comes from working with the same people and, the film that I just did was with a director I'd done two shorts with and we talked a lot about how we were going to do it, but it was much more um, almost like philosophical, you know, in terms of what we talked about in terms of the approach to the film. We didn't really, we talked a bit technically and we talked about anamorphic or spherical or, you know, once we kind of got to a decision, trusted it and we knew that we were going to do it similar to a style of one of the shorts we'd done. And, and then we would just talk about everything rather than just technical sides of things which was great and we talked loads about story and character and um the camera was essentially one of the characters so that was really nice and i think when you work with someone a lot you've kind of had the technical chats you know where your sensibilities match and you know what they like that you do and what you can bring to it so you can trust it more i think and i guess when you're working with someone new you're building that up all the time but um i've been lucky to work with the same people a few times and hopefully continue continue to of course Again, when you were talking then about um, networking, you were <laughs> preaching to the converted with me. I know exactly that feeling of trying to reach out to people and having so much self-doubt about it in the process. I mean, it's completely paralyzed me in the past. Yeah, to the point where, where I just won't for months. It started to change for me a bit. I'm still not active enough with it. And, you know, I have nothing but respect for people who are very good at getting their name out there and, and doing it well. And it's definitely the biggest, I think the biggest struggle I have with this industry is the, um, any type of self-promotional networking I really don't enjoy. Yeah. And it's unfortunately quite vital, isn't it? That's the problem. It's as much of a talent as any part of it. I think, you know, it's, it's part of the job. It's so I'm trying to, trying to improve on it. To what extent is problem solving part of your job? I think some days it's like 95%. I mean, it's, it's sometimes it feels like you, all you do is solve problems and then you remember you have to shoot something at some point. Non-cinematography related problems as well. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, everything. I think it's the one thing that you sort of wish someone told you when you were starting out and thinking, I want to be a DLP is that the amount of time you actually spend lighting and shooting is very, very minimal. And it's certainly in terms of actual dedicated time to light and shooting, it's even less, which is why, probably why prep and the time you put in becomes so vital. You've got a shorthand with the gaffer who's, you know, you see things really similarly, you know, that's so invaluable to the process of lighting, you know, 
crew is so important because you can be getting pulled off into a conversation about anything, you know, suddenly a location's changed and you've got to go and talk about that or, you know, something that day's changed. Then you have to go and immediately switch and be on set and be thinking about operating or thinking about the light, thinking about, you know, all these things, you know, it's pretty exhausting, you know, and um, no one really tells you when you're starting out that, you know, you'll probably spend more time talking about schedules and logistics than you will about shooting a perfect f-stop throughout the entire project you know that, that becomes a luxury you know that's part of it that's what making a film is and if you if you're not totally expecting that to be distracting you constantly and i see it with i mean with directors it's unbelievable what they what they're having to the discussions they're trying to have and then they have to switch into talking to an actor about the meaning of a scene or what they're trying to get across and then you know at the same time they've got someone coming up to them and and saying you know can you sign off on this this person to act in a scene two weeks away you know it's a mad thing but it's also part of making a film you know we can't pretend that it's not like the logistics that's what makes it i have this this expression that when i i don't know how i got it into my head someone must have said it to me at some point but ever since i've had it it's changed everything and that's that the obstacles are the path and as soon as i started telling myself that probably five times a day i don't stress anymore on set really ever like you know sometimes of course we all have days when it's just overwhelming and there's a lot going on but in terms of my attitude to like the problems rarely do things not work out okay i mean rarely here's an example so on the beat the series that i just shot we had a location you know you know like a mechanics yard and we got there and they were refusing to close we had about three hours to shoot three or four page scene with loads of stuff you know it was a lot to do even in the time that we had scheduled we got there, they refused to close. They were still allowing like scrap to come in, scrap metal to come in. And we stood around for 45 minutes. We set up the camera and we kept them to move our vehicle to, you know, the, the hero vehicle and to let things in. And we were just like, right, it's ridiculous. And the locations guys came in and said, right, there's another one around the corner. So we made the decision to drop everything, location move, which as you know, takes time. So we probably ended up having an hour and 45 minutes to shoot what was a push at three hours. But we ended up in a location that was calm that was quiet that probably looked better said to the director probably every day on that job don't worry obstacles are the path this is probably the one time i didn't believe it because we still had so much to do and we shot everything and we probably shot it better and we ended up with stuff that was just we would never have got in this other place as soon as i started taking that into like you can't you know unless you're in a studio with lots of money you don't have control and i love being on location you know but to me, that's part of filmmaking is being in practical locations and having all those things. Kind of like it when the, the world's getting in the way of making a film. And yeah, as soon as I started thinking about, you know, having that mantra all the time, nothing's a problem because it'll always, it might be different, but it'll always be better for it, I think. I suppose it results in you being a little more clear-headed, having that perspective too, which means you, I mean, you'll likely be working better, won't you? This location isn't working and we've got two hours and we have no other chance on this entire schedule to shoot this scene. The decision is that we're going over here. It's like, okay, we're not even going to worry anymore. This is what we have. This is what we're going to deal with. And we're going to make the best of it. Taking that into every day of shooting has made a massive difference to my approach. Well, I think I might be taking that mantra myself. It's a good one. I wanted to ask you, if you'd be happy to tell me about the biggest hurdle that you faced in your career and what you've done to manage this. I had a spell four years ago i guess when you know when I, you know sort of touched on kind of lack of self-confidence and lack of self-belief which was all like pretty debilitating for me for a year or so like i'd have spells when i just didn't really leave the house very much certainly didn't push for any work certainly 
the thought of being on set or trying to do anything was almost, I just couldn't do it. And I did a little bit of like CBT at the time, but I didn't really find it helped much. And this has been something that I get from time to time on varying levels. This was probably the worst point. And sort of took myself away from the industry for about seven weeks um, with my partner at the time. We went out to Spain and just lived in the middle of nowhere for a bit. And, you know, whether it was other stuff going on or whatever, but, but it did affect work for quite a long time. And I think often it comes from, it's hard, you know, like there's a sort of a love of doing this job, you know, that I need to do it, but then it can also, you know, whether you're doing the right kind of work or the jobs you want to do does impact. It's part of it, I think. And I think that was what I was struggling with. And often I do go back to like, am I doing jobs that are fulfilling and worth the amount of time I'm away from home or not seeing my friends or anything like that, you know? And I think that has had, at times really, really impacted, you know, my mental health. Over the kind of lockdowns, I did a fair bit of therapy. It was quite a good time just to stop down and just try and work out why this happens, why I get these massive lows of confidence and things like that, which was obviously useful because it's always useful to talk about this stuff. You know, you just have to wait, I think, until you're kind of ready to do it often. Yeah, so I had that that one spell that was really hard, but it's kind of a constant thing. I think the confidence issues that I have, for whatever reason, is always the biggest hurdle. And there's been times, like I say, when it's really almost been, been quite debilitating and whether it, you know, leads into never being diagnosed with depression or anything, but it kind of has come out like that at stages for sure. And then it's the weird thing is quite often you'll then get some work in and feel good again and be like, oh, okay, this is good. And then it kind of creeps back in. So quite often it's something more complicated that you're, that you're working out, right. That um, is maybe impacting these things. And that's, I think my continued effort is to try and get the balance of work and life and not, not needing the next job to feel excited about, you know, what's going on generally, you know, and trying to, have a life outside the industry and and also little passion projects of my own you know it's why i've been doing more, more photography and having things that like i have control over and i'm getting something out of and doing you know that's been a big help for me but yeah the impact of my complete lack of self-confidence and at times and self-doubt that kicks in is definitely the biggest hurdle i've had just mentioned your photographer is choosing to kind of diversify a little bit into photography has that sort of helped you with your mental well-being and your confidence and approach to things or i think it gives me something that's that i'm not you know not doing for anyone else and that you know i think that's also something that you know when you're doing commercials you know it's draining and i'm really trying to do less and less of it because you know you're always at the will of an agency or a client who just work for day you know a long time or directs work for weeks and everything just gets you know torn up in your face and you may as well not be bothered so the thing for that is it's been something that I can just have a real control on and real just go out and shoot and do things how I like it and you can either see it or they can't. And it's just, it's art for the sake of it. And that's what I've realized is really beneficial to me is, you know, sometimes I'm quite practical about things and I'm like, you know, I need to earn a living, you know, to begin with. And then, you know, you have to also try and marry that up with like what, you know, you don't do this job. If you want to just make a living, you can do any job ever. So you're trying to find out like, how do I, marry up those two things there's um something i think about a lot there's this little triangle of dots of three things that you can think about a job can either make you rich make you happy or make you famous and so it can either make you money make you feel good or it can improve your career you know when you're starting out you're probably doing one it's probably achieving one of those things you're either taking a job for a bit of cash or maybe it'll meet a new director or whatever and or you'll do something because it's personally fulfilling 
And then hopefully you start doing, you know, a job will take on two of those. And then ideally you want a job to be doing all three of those. And that's something I feel like I've been working towards for quite a long time. And more often than not, they're two out of three now. But it's always what I go to. Like if a job's only one of them, I'll start finding a reason to get out of it. I think, you know, you can take on a job because you think it might help your career, but if it's not going to make you happy or be worth the time, then there's no point. And you can take on a job for money, but if it's not going to make you happy, it's really unfulfilling. There's a lot of power in saying no to work as well. It can feel good to turn stuff down if, you know, if it's just not right for you at the time. Also something that if you can, if you can get a little buffer of, of money in, you know, that's also a really nice thing. It's like, right, I'm making positive choices now towards what I'm doing. And Yours kind of steering your own career a little bit more. Than- Certainly when you're starting out, there's such a pressure, mostly from yourself to just say yes to everything because you're so nervous to never come along again. But certainly after you've been doing it a few years, I remember when I first went freelance speaking to a cameraman, it's it's like, how are you just not always terrified you're not going to get any more work? And he's like, after six or seven years, if it was going to go wrong, it would have by now. And obviously that's a long, you have to get through the first couple of years and it's a hard industry to get into. But, you know, touch wood it will carry on as it as it is once you've got your foot in the door you know just on the as we mentioned your photography thought it'd be good to bring up your photography project lost in process which i read on your website you describe as contrasting collaborative portraits with carefully observed documentary photography you shot the project in suriname the smallest country in south america how did that project come about and how did it develop and what made you decide to shoot in suriname so it came around basically 2018 was probably from a personal perspective again talking about overcoming hurdles was probably the worst the hardest year of my life for many many reasons but coming out of that I needed to do something I just needed to get away I needed to kind of get away for a while just clear my head just see if I could exist basically anywhere else on the planet and just you know really get away from things so I spun google maps and I stopped it with my finger I was just north of Brazil so I zoomed in and um, there's Guyana, French Guyana and Suriname are these three countries just above Brazil. And I thought my um, geography in, of South America was all right, but th- those three took me by surprise. And so I, started, I zoomed in and I started reading a bit about Suriname and just sort of got really kind of taken with it. And it's a kind of ex-Dutch colony. So it has all these kind of beautiful old wooden houses and, you know, really interesting architecture that feels very out of kilter with. I spent a fair bit of time in South America. My brother lived out there for a while and I shot out there a fair bit. So I kind of have an image of what it was and it was so against it. And it's slightly Caribbean as well with the coastline. And but then it also has the Amazon in it as well. So 600,000 people in the whole country. And so about three and a half weeks later, I was there for a month. I took out my medium format camera and a lot of film stock and, and basically just walked around for, for four weeks. I, I wasn't too interested in traveling around the country. I just I got an Airbnb in the capital which was called Paramaribo. And just, it was quite a therapeutic, cathartic thing for me just to kind of go off and and make a project and whether I made anything after it or didn't, didn't really matter to me. It was more just kind of shaking, shaking my life up a little bit and taking a bit of control back because there'd been a lot of things that were kind of out of my control in the year before that. It was amazing. It was one of the best things I've ever done and changed my life that month without a doubt. I came back went straight from the airport to the lab, took them 30 rolls of film, 28, 29 rolls of film. And um, they called me the next day and said, it's all been fogged. I don't know what's happened, but we can't really see any images. Kind of just thought, okay, 
I, I scanned in a couple at home and there was it wasn't you know there, there was something had happened i think what happened is the scanners in the airport in suriname are very very old and they they really affect the film you know normally uptake 100 iso you're fine but and i've traveled with film before yeah this was all it, whether it was the heat out there as well but whatever happened the the film wasn't what it certainly wasn't what it should have been so uh i kind of just said okay it was it was about more than a photography project it was you know it was about you know having a, a different experience and taking a chance and getting away and then lockdown came a year later and i thought okay well if ever there was a time to go through these these scans let's let's really do it and see what i can find and to go through these next sorry um so i started scanning them in and in that first lockdown and found that kind of a couple of frames in every role there was there was something there and um found a kind of little weird process digital process to to bring them back to life and basically you know the sort of the reason it's called lost in process is it felt to me like the trick that edited the pictures like i had to let go of everything that i thought i'd taken all those nice images that i hoped that i'd had and pretty much all the pictures that i was able to salvage make up the book um so i feel like the the the, the book was edited by the by the trip you know the, this this is whatever whatever it was meant to be this is what it was and fortunately there's there's enough images that i really love in there and um i put it together into a like into a photozine in that first lockdown and um have been selling it for for charity kind of covered the cost of the printing and all the proceeds have been gone to charity and it's still on sale isn't it yeah i've sold about 100 150 of the of the 250 there's about, there's about 280 copies actually but um my plan was to sell 250 and send 30 odd out back to Suriname hopefully do but yeah I've got about 100 odd between 80 and 100 copies left and if people wanted to check that out and potentially buy a copy of the zine where could they do that to my website and there's a link on my Instagram still in the bio of that to go there and through PayPal I'll put it in the show notes as well Thank you so much. Yeah, like I say, all the proceeds originally about a thousand pounds. Now I'm going to be giving to Refuge, which is a domestic abuse charity, because obviously domestic abuse cases went soaring during lockdown. And yeah, I, I might from from here on, I might do the rest for towards the wildfires. Or I was thinking of changing it a little bit to give it a new new sort of lease of life and, and a new push. Good luck with that. I hope. I mean, I got myself a copy, and I really loved your photography in it. So. I highly recommend people do check out Chris's photography work and get a copy of the zine because uh, it was uh, entertainment for me in lockdown, um, which was hard to come by right at the beginning. Final question. What gives you hope? Yeah, that's a hard one these days. In amongst everything in the world's a very divided place and you know we have climate that needs desperate attention and that takes up a lot of my, my mind a lot of the time is, is one of my biggest concerns like and something that i can definitely spend too much time thinking about and not enough time doing anything about but i think it's still humanity that does i think like when you see people doing good things for very little reward you realize that there's a lot to be hopeful for hopefully the good people will outweigh the bad and you know we all just need to keep doing keep doing more things for others well, that's, I think that's a really nice answer. I feel like I agree with you that, um, yeah, when you see someone else acting in that way and doing something charitable without any reward, it's, it gives you hope and faith in humanity. 
I think we all need a little bit of, don't we? Find us online at visiongraft.com. And for updates, follow Will on Instagram at visiongraft.